pray together. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, the eyes of our minds, that we might behold wonderful things from your word, that we will see the implications of what your word teaches, that we might apply them to our own hearts and lives, and that we might become people whose lives are changed as a result of, once again, being reminded of the greatness of the gospel of Christ and the wonders of your love for sinners like us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you've got a copy of your bulletin, would you just uh, grab it there for a second and open up your bulletin to the inside, lower left-hand side, and you'll find there, as it is every week, a copy of our church's mission statement. And I'd like to just read it once again. If you got it in front of you, you can join with me in reading it, because we've tried to define exactly what we're up to here as a church. It says, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who treasure, live out, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. So you'll notice in that statement, there's a lot packed in there, of course, but you'll notice one of the key parts of that statement is that we are committed to glorifying God by making disciples. And so... The idea of making disciples is really what our church mission is built around. And of course, that means that the gospel is at the center of that. But what we want to do is we want to ask the question this morning, what's involved in discipling other people? What does that really look like? What does that entail? Uh, Last fall, I believe it was, in our Wednesday Bible study, we were looking at and found very helpfully, uh, very helpful, this book by, written by Mark Dever called Discipling. And uh, if you didn't make that, you really missed out on some very helpful teaching. He says, the book title is called Discipling, How to Help Others Follow Jesus. How to Help Others Follow Jesus. And Dever gives this working definition of discipling, and in your notes, I think, has uh, the quote there with a couple of blanks. His definition of discipling is, discipling is deliberately doing spiritual good to someone so that he or she will become more like Christ. Doing spiritual good for other people, deliberately, intentionally. So we'd say the first step then to making disciples of Jesus is is that we know we have to first of all answer the call that Jesus makes, and that is when he says, follow me. We can't be making disciples until we ourselves are a disciple of Jesus Christ. We're a follower. We're a person who is united to Christ, not just because of affiliation with a local group, but because we personally have been united to Christ by our own faith. We're trusting in Jesus. We're trusting in what He has accomplished on our behalf. We are people who are resting all our hopes, our fears, our future on Jesus. We are people then who are yielded to him and yielding the agenda of our lives to Jesus so that he's the one who's leading us and we're following his promptings. The Apostle Paul says it this way, disciples are people who no longer live for ourselves, but we're living for him who loved us and died for us and who was raised again for us. I would dare say that the book of Acts is an inspired 
account of first century believers who were orient, orienting their lives around other people in order to make disciples. That's what we see going on in the book of Acts. The book begins with the 11 disciples that Jesus himself discipled. And the 11 are there in chapter 1. It begins with them. And then we find them involved in making disciples in an ever-widening, ever-expanding circle of people. And that brings us up now as we fast forward up to chapter 18, in which we saw last Sunday, uh, we looked at the first part of this. I want us now to look at the latter part of chapter 18. We find again, no surprise, discipling going on in this process in full gear in chapter 18. You can't miss it. I mean, if you read this section before us today, as Jason did, we discover four practical ways, and there probably are more here, but I'm just going to pick out four, four practical ways the disciples of Jesus intentionally went about doing spiritual good to other people in order to make disciples, to make people more like Christ. And I would dare say, it's interesting what Mike shared this morning. I appreciated what he shared before and during his prayer. That a dynamic, healthy church is going to be a church that incorporates, I would imagine, these four, at least these four, discipling strategies into our church culture. So what are they? Well, first of all, let's notice that we come in verses uh, 2 and 3 from last week. We ran into a couple called Aquila and Priscilla. And we noticed that in their particular background, they came from Rome originally, but they have come into town there where Paul was in Corinth, and they share in common uh, a business. They are both small business owners, and they're involved in the same work that Paul was doing on the side when they were uh, making tents or working with leather. And one of the dynamics that we see going on here in this discipling strategy is the simple act of sharing going on. And I would call then the first point is caring. Caring. I had one time cooperating, but I'm going to use the word caring. What do we mean by caring? Well, look at what it says as we get into the text here. We find that in verse 18, when Paul moves on, and not only did they open their home to Paul when they were in Corinth, they followed Paul over to Ephesus. And when they're over in Ephesus, you'll notice that they opened their home and allowed the church to meet in their home when they were in Ephesus. We find that in, um, as he says here, verse 18, Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and set out, put out to the Sea of Syria, and with him were Priscilla, Aquila, and Sincrea. He had his hair, of course, cut, and then he came to Ephesus, he left them there, and he entered the synagogue. And so... He left them there, and then eventually he writes to the Romans, sorry, he wrote, he wrote in the book of 1 Corinthians, let me just back up here, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, at the end of the book, Paul commends Aquila and Priscilla, saying, and the church that meets in their home. Now he's writing it to the Corinthians, but we know that he also was willing to offer his home. Later on, the couple moved back to Rome. And we again read that they are hosting the church in their home. The church is meeting not in a fancy big building, they're meeting in a home. And they have opened their home in order to show the care they have for their fellow believers 
and for others to come and hear about Christ. This couple extended this kind of hospitality in their home in a number of places as a general pattern, and they sought to do good to other people with the provision that they had been entrusted with. Apparently, they were fairly well-to-do business folk. They had a decent home, enough to uh, allow people to come and share it, and so they made it available. Look also in chapter 18, verse 7. You'll notice there that there was another fellow. This is, again, back in Corinth, in which he welcomed Paul at some point to come and meet in his home. And he happened to live right beside the synagogue. So here we see a connection, do we not, of opening people's homes for gospel ministry? It's really nothing more than the overflow of their hearts. Hearts that said, listen, I have a desire to honor God and I want to do so by serving other people. And so if I've got a decent home and I can have these folks in here, I'm more than glad to do it. Open hearts, open homes. An open heart oftentimes will lead to an open home. And what an amazing impact this simple biblical ministry can have, the, the ministry of hospitality, of caring for people by opening our hearts and opening our homes. Why is a, a ministry in a home such a, a good place to do discipling? Well, one reason is because it's rather informal. People aren't always dressed up, looking their best. Uh, things are all not always not in their, their rightful place. And, uh, but it's a time in which you can, for example, linger over a meal. Slow down the hectic pace of Long Island that so many people have. Slowing down, inviting people over for a lingering conversation after church service, over a shared lunch. What incredible ministry can take place in that setting. Or perhaps you've heard a person recently talk to you about a, a heavy, difficult problem. They're, they're weighed down with some concerns. And you say, come on over, let's, let's have some coffee together. I'd like to hear more about what's going on with this particular situation. Ending in a time where you could actually pray for them and with them. Or what about the ministry of welcoming singles who live alone into your home, inviting students who are away from home to share a meal? What an incredible ministry that is. These are wonderful ways to be involved in discipling other people. I wonder, is this the kind of orientation of your life? You say, well, I don't really have much of a place to share. I live in a place where I'm just living in a little room here. Okay, then that's not necessarily going to fit for you in that specific application. But the idea is, do you seek other people out to say, hey, let's get together. I'd like to be sure to pay for this coffee. Let's sit down and talk at Starbucks sometime. I'm not a big Starbucks proponent, by the way, but I've met many a people there over the years and uh, drink something other than coffee. Thank you very much. It's too strong and whew, it's not my favorite, but that's, the I, that's where people like to meet. It is a nice place to talk and to listen and to share. I wonder if you ever include other people into your circle of relationships. Different people. People you don't know as well. And the purpose of doing so is to get to know them. The purpose is to hear their story. The purpose is to ask good questions to get them to tell you what's going on in their life so that you might know what's going on in their hearts and know how to pray for them. It's amazing what you can learn when you have a person in your home or if you have them on a situation where you've specifically, intentionally sought them out to listen to them 
and ask good questions. I'm telling you, one of the most impressive people that ever did this in, in my knowing, in my years, were my in-laws, Joyce's parents. God bless them. What a simple, kind, caring couple who did not have an impressive, large home. It was a rather straightforward, three-bedroom, post-World War II home, uh, very small kitchen, very uh, a, a living room that just went on into the dining room, and they had so many people over that table sharing meals, talking, laughing, crying together. And then they'd follow up with that people later on. They'd offer to get involved, helping to take people places and, and taking care of kids and, I mean, encouraging them, phone calls, follow up. They, just, they had people in their basement. They put a little bedroom in the basement eventually. They had a, a missionary woman that would stay there during her furloughs. They had a young guy in biblical uh, college training. He would stay there, and I would go see Joyce and have a visit. I'm down in the basement with Dan. Big Dan's down there because they're giving him a place to live for free. They don't, they're trying to encourage people. It was an incredible, wonderful way of sharing their hearts with people. And it didn't take a fancy home. It doesn't take a fancy meal. None of that, well, they didn't have good meals, her folks. Let me just go on record. She made some yeast rolls that would just make you salivate, I'm telling you. Had some very good food, but that wasn't the point. It's not an immaculate house. It wasn't with fancy, complicated recipes. What you sensed in their home was what? A willing, open heart that welcomed other people, that valued other people, that desired to serve other people. It doesn't take a complicated big program to reach people. You can do it in your own home. In everyday life, things that you're already doing. You're already fixing food and serving meals and having conversations around a table. I hope you are. Another thing interesting going on, not only caring, but there's also an interesting, very strange, rather odd, can't make sense of it when you first read it, event that takes place in Paul's life. Did you find this a little odd when you read in verse 18 to 21 where we get to Paul and he's talking about the fact that he, um, we read here that in Sincrea, verse 18, which is a town just down the, the road from Corinth, so it's really very close to Corinth, and Paul moves over there and he gets a haircut. Big deal. What's that all about? He gets a haircut. Well, there's a story behind the story here, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to explain it to you very carefully, but I think there's a principle here, and I'm going to try to explain it. It says that along with the haircut, he was trying to keep a vow. You say, well, what's the connection between a haircut and a vow? Well, you've got to go back to Numbers chapter 6. I don't have time here to read the whole thing, but first 18 verses will help you understand that there was a special vow called a Nazarite vow. Not about a person who was living in the, t- in the town of Nazareth. That's spelled differently. This is a Nazirite, N-A-Z-I-R-I-T-E. A Nazarite vow was a voluntary way of committing yourself to God to express thankfulness to God, to express to Him devotion to Him because of a gratitude of being so deeply appreciative of God. And so anyone who took a Nazarite vow was voluntarily choosing to forego strong drink and anything to do with grapes. I don't know why, but there's, I'm sure there's a reason there. I don't know exactly what it was. And 
and they're also giving up a haircut. So if you're a man, it became very obvious after a while, oh, this guy must have taken a vow because his hair is getting extremely long, which is not normal at that time. So Paul took this vow, likely, I believe, to express his gratitude to God because how did God just bless him in Corinth? Remember he told him, gave him that uh, vision at night and said, listen, I'm with you. Nothing's going to happen to you here. For 18 months, nothing happened to him. I think he was like, God, thank you, thank you, thank you. You have spared my life. You have spared me from all that suffering, from all these other towns I've been in, one after the other after the other. And so I think he says, Lord, I am just dedicating myself to a fresh and a new. I am yours. I'm so thankful. And he did so by letting his hair grow long to publicly signify that he was giving himself in service to God. And his Jewish friends would have picked up on that. It would have been a great conversation starter to say, listen, I'll tell you why I've got my hair long. I am so thankful to Jesus. And he'd start in on it. After 30 days was over, when you took a particular Nazarite vow, there's also different time periods, 60 days, there was um, various lengths of 90 days, I think. After 30 days was over, it was customary, after you've cut your hair, to get yourself over to the temple in Jerusalem and to make a couple of sacrifices there, and then you burned the long locks of hair that grew, and you put them on the fire as a way of saying, I am thank thanking God I put these things before him. And I say, why is Paul still doing all this stuff? Isn't all these... Rules and regulations, sort of, aren't they sort of no longer valid and in place? Well, I don't have time to get into that in a lengthy way. We'll look at that more in chapter 19. But we know that the book of Acts is a book of transitions. They are transitioning from the old covenant to the new covenant. They are transitioning from all of the repeated offerings offered in the temple on a regular basis, on and on and on, to the one and only sacrifice of Christ in the new covenant. And so we know that there is going from the history of Judaism into Jesus. That's what's happening in the book of Acts. The book of Hebrews gives us the theology of that change from Judaism into Jesus. And so there are a number of things that were going on in the book of Acts that were hang-ons. Hang they, were, they were things that were being done that were still being done that didn't necessarily need to be keep, keeping on doing, but they did them anyway because that was what? I grew up that way. Right? Tradition, tradition. And so these are things that they just grew up. He was so comfortable doing it because that was just the way they always did. And so it was very slow for the process to, to, to give up certain traditions. And so Paul is still carrying them on. Other people in the book of Acts are still carrying them on because things are in a state of flux. And so I'd be very careful. Don't be careful of making your theology only from the book of Acts. It's much more wiser to make your theology out of the epistles once they figured it all out and once they begin to articulate it all rather than the book of Acts because it's still a lot of changes going on there that really haven't been fully established. Well, I got way off onto a tangent, but let's go back to Paul here. Paul was headed back to Jerusalem. And I believe that when you read in verses 20 and 21, here he is in Ephesus. He's clearly having an impact with his fellow Jews. They like what he's having to say because they're realizing this guy's, look at his vow he's taken, and he, he's having a great time ministering. But he says, I'm not sticking around here, even though they're welcoming him. I'm not staying here. I'm headed out of here. And so he heads back, I believe, 
to Jerusalem. It doesn't say that, but I believe that's where he went, along with Antioch and other places. And that is the end of his second missionary tour. Luke just sort of, boom, summarized it very briefly, boom, to the point it's over. Now, some, of, some have suggested that this is why Paul didn't stick around in Ephesus, is because he was determined within that time frame to get back to Jerusalem to offer that hair on that altar. That's what they say. Now, Paul was not under obligation to take this vow. He voluntarily entered into it. He wanted to express heartfelt gratitude. Now, let's think a little bit more what's, what's behind that. Some commentators have suggested that in the keeping of this vow of consecration, followed by the haircut, this head shaving, was an example for Paul of this very important principle, which I think Paul incorporated into his life, becoming all things to all people that I might in some way win some. Paul took this vow as a way to say, I am going to thank God, I'm dedicating myself, I'm going to use this vow, and it's going to be that way I'm going to share more effectively about who Jesus is. And so he did so with this kind of radical consecration. It was done in a way that drew attention to the fact that he was different. There's something going on. It drew attention to the fact that he was serious about his devotion to Jesus. And it became a forum for him to share his gratitude to God in his gospel ministry. I wonder, have you ever known anybody like that? Who, for various reasons, they just become so thankful to God, they're so amazed by the gospel, the way that God's changed their heart and life and given them a new transformed spirit on the inside, that they just consecrate themselves to Christ and it's resulted in, in radically reorienting their lives toward other people for the gospel's sake. I think many of us have known a couple like that. Bob and Ruth Murs have come to mind. Here they are, retired, well-educated Long Island school teachers. They have, they've got a comfortable retirement income, I'm assuming. I don't know all their specifics, but it's pretty, pretty good assumption. They're blessed with all sorts of resources that they could live a life of ease at that point and just have enjoyment and to do whatever they wanted to do in their senior years, just kick back, travel, and just have a good time. But what'd they do? Back in the 90s, they signed up with a mission organization specifically focused on translating the Bible into the heart languages of people around the world. It's called SIL. And they devoted six and a half years to serving those involved in this type of ministry, translating the Bible, and specifically, they went to uh, Papua New Guinea, and Ruth used her music education skills to teach in the school there. Bob uses literacy skills from his years here serving on Long Island, and he used that there in their literacy training program. And they joyfully devoted so many of their retirement years and resources to what? Discipling other people serving so that others might be blessed. I think of Tim Schneider's sister, Jen. She's a single woman devoting herself to the ministry of rescuing, caring for, and placing in forever homes orphans in Quito, Ecuador. She is a busy young lady, I'm telling you. And she's quite capable. She earned a degree from a very 
uh, I would say, uh, um, amazing private Christian college that she was allowed to go to. She gave up a career. She gave up the comforts of home to serve the forgotten and the needy people of South America. And there's some people like here, like some people here who for years have been doing similar kinds of amazing heroic ministry. People who give up Friday nights have been doing it for years. Or they give up a Friday night as sponsors for youth ministry. And they come and they hang out with what? Active, rambunctious, what word do you want to use? Um, hard to understand teenagers. In giving themselves to seeking to bring Christ and helping them understand the wonders of who Jesus is. Discipling other people. I wonder, does your heart overflow with gratitude to Christ in deliberate devotion to being willing to consecrate yourself in some area of saying, you know, I'm going to give this up because I really want to do this. I really want to invest in this way in other people's lives. Can other people see any sign of that consecration in your life? I'm not talking about walking around with a wig, you know, a rainbow wig, and holding up John 3.16, you know, on TV or something. That's not what I'm talking about. Not that kind of bizarre stuff. I'm talking about can people see that there's a sense in which you're choosing to orient your life in a way that says, I am belong to Jesus Christ. I want to use my life to make a difference in other people's lives. Obviously, the church was a caring church. It was a church in which people were consecrated, consecrating themselves to God. Thirdly, it was also an interesting process of discipleship involved this interaction between the couple we saw earlier, Aquila and Priscilla, but there comes onto the scene when Paul goes off the scene and he now goes back to the home base of the home church. Then you find in this interesting part in verse 24, or actually, yeah, verse 24, now a certain Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth. He's come from Egypt, a, a city that, would, by the way, is the third largest city in the empire and a, a, a city known for its high population of Jewish people. So he comes onto the scene there in Ephesus. And boy, does he come on the scene. It says that he is a person who has a, he's a compelling speaker. He is highly educated. And he's a person, verse 24, who is mighty in the Scriptures. Oh, I love that. Now, the Scriptures, of course, are the Hebrew Scriptures. That's all they got. It's probably the Septuagint, because that's where it was translated. From Hebrew into Greek is in, in Alexandria. And so he comes, and by the way, the word there, mighty in Scripture, is the word from which we get the word dynamite. This guy is powerful in the Scriptures. Wow. And so here he is. He, I call him a completed Jew. He's a person who has embraced Jesus as the Messiah. And he appears on the scene boldly proclaiming biblical truth. Now, there's just one problem. You say, what in the world would be a problem with that kind of dynamite, dynamite guy? Well, Apollos' understanding of the gospel was lacking. Apparently, somehow in his learning about Jesus as the Messiah, he got up to the point where he understood what John the Baptist was teaching. He understood that John the Baptist called people to repent. He understood that Jesus was the one to whom the Old Testament was pointing. But he didn't understand, apparently, the full, the full story of what Jesus had come, that Jesus had died on the cross 
he had been buried, he was raised from the dead three days later, according to the scriptures, and that he ascended, and that indeed, after that, the Holy Spirit baptized the people of God on Pentecost. Apparently he didn't know anything about those things. It's unbelievable. That, that seems to be the implied situation. And so now what are you going to do? Here you've got a motivated, gifted, willing disciple who comes on the scene. He's ready to do ministry. He's equipped with this explosive knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures. But his teaching doesn't go far enough. His teaching is not gospel-saturated. It's lacking. He left off the essentials of the gospel. So what to do? Dear old Aquila and Priscilla, they discipled him. They discipled him. Notice it says in verse 26, they listened to his teaching, and then they privately took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. That's such a beautiful thing. Notice that the text does not say that they harassed him in public while he was teaching, saying, hey, 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 knock it off. You're way off base here, man. No, they didn't do that. They didn't carelessly lob criticisms at him. They didn't attack his teaching in public. They corrected him and equipped him in private. I would dare say, guess where they probably did that? In their home. I'm just guessing. Doesn't say that. Probably had a good meal first. And then they probably spoke to him. And it's two on one. It's the husband and wife speaking to this gentleman. I think that's appropriate. Obviously, Priscilla had some things to helpfully offer to him. He was a wise man to heed it. And like Paul, they discipled him. By admonishing him, by teaching him with all wisdom so that he might become complete in Christ, Colossians 1.28. That's what it means to disciple, to teach and admonish. And so here, notice that they got him squared away on the basics and the fundamentals of the gospel. And look at the result, verse 27 of our text. Because he was brought into great, better teaching and understanding, and he therefore could proclaim the full understanding of the gospel as it is in what Christ actually did and completed, not just what he was predicted to do. Verse 27, he was greatly helped. No, he, he was able to greatly help those who had believed through grace. Now he's really helpful because he's been corrected and helped and discipled. So now he's making a huge impact for the kingdom. So much so that his influence was so powerful and so helpful and so impressive that when Paul writes back to the Corinthians in chapter 1 and chapter 3 of that letter and he starts addressing some of the concerns of the Corinthian church. As you recall, the Corinthian church was divided into all these little factions, right? There was one group that said, hey, listen, we're the followers of Peter. Oh, no, 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 we have a, this group over here, we're the followers of Paul. And you know what the other group was called? There's two other groups. One group was saying, yeah, we're, we're followers of Apollos. We think he's really the one 
we want to affiliate ourselves around him. And then other people say, well, you know, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. I mean, that was the other fourth group. They trumped everybody. But, but the, again, he's, level, he's on the level of Peter and Paul. Here's Apollos. He's that respected as a church leader, as a spiritual leader. The man is really making a difference for the kingdom. Now, what's the principle here? How do you respond to a younger, zealous person who lacks discernment? Who makes a bad choice? Who says something stupid or says something that's really off base? Do you just sort of push them off to the sidelines and say, uh, just be quiet and, you know, we'll let, we'll let you say some things later on when you're 45 or 60 maybe. You know, just sort of, we don't want to hear much else out of you, thank you. Do you ignore them, ignore their faults? Just sort of dismiss it and just let them figure it out on their own? No, Quilla and Priscilla, they spoke the truth in love. I think they took a risk. This guy was so impressive, so powerful in his ability to speak and so compelling in his ability to present truth. For them to speak in his life, I think that took some guts. But they took that risk and they helped him become a true powerhouse for the true transforming gospel. Now, there's no way of knowing for you and me the full impact if we're investing ourselves in the other people here at New Village. You never know when you pulled somebody aside and said, by the way, let me just share this verse with you. I just want to clarify, this is really what it means here. When you spoke a word that helped to under, make somebody more aware of what the gospel means, you never know. Someday, God may relocate that person from here and take them and assign them somewhere else, and who knows the number of lives that person will touch and impact for the sake of the kingdom, because you invested in one person here, and that's what happened to Apollos. He was on the move, doing all kinds of stuff for the glory of God. Now, before I get to my final point, I want to make one more question here. This is a question I had to ask myself, and I think it'd be wise to ask yourself. If we talk about that one of the aspects of discipleship involves correcting other people in love, gently, obviously, privately, how about this question? Are we who are under construction still, and none of us have really ever fully grasped the truth, are we willing to be corrected? Do you ever invite people around you to say, Listen, if I ever say something or do something way off base, would you please come and speak to me? Would you help me see it straight? Help me with my blind sides. I don't see everything 100%. What a powerful, humble position to have in order to allow people to correct you. Whether you're a husband, whether you're a wife, whether you're an employee, whether you're a student, whether you are a grandparent, an in-law, God help us, to be able to allow correction from somebody that we need to hear something. What a wonderful attitude. What a way to encourage a spirit of discipleship when you yourself are willing to receive correction when offered to you. Just a thought. And now another aspect of discipling is found 
in verse 27. And this, to me, has made such an impression on me again of how practical this is, how powerful it is when it's carried out in a God-honoring way. Here you've got Apollos. He has humbly received this loving criticism and correction as a disciple of Jesus, and he, he heads now from Ephesus westward back to Corinth, which is just across the Aegean Sea there, and he wants to mightily minister the scriptures about Jesus the Messiah. He really wants to make a difference. And look what happens in verse 27. The brethren, his fellow believers there in Ephesus, encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. They encouraged Apollos and they also encouraged others to welcome him. The believers there spoke words of affirmation to this brother Apollos. And they wanted other people in the church of Corinth to say, listen, we are commending this guy to you. You need to listen to him. He has so much to offer. We recognize the fact that he has gifts. He has a ministry calling on his life. And we urge you to heed him. It's like they were patting him on the back. Hey, Apollos, man, you have got, you have got a lot you can offer the kingdom, brother. We're going to be encouraging you to keep doing it. They let him know that his contribution was valuable. His teachable spirit was so honorable, and his passion for the Word of God was so commendable. Now may I say, in humble confession, it is very easy to be critical. It doesn't take a lot of thought or effort to find some point of criticism for anybody or anything, isn't it? Think about it. Criticism comes easy. All those annoying habits that people have, all of the ways in which we know we all sin, we all have fallen short, we all don't measure up in different ways. It's so easy to find areas to criticize. But it's interesting, when you see a new relationship start, think about a new relationship, like when you first met your, you know, your future wife or your future husband or when you met a friend or somebody down the street and you started a relationship with, you're just getting to know them. Everybody's what? Full of compliments. Full of encouraging words for each other and occasional criticism, but oh, how we, you know, it's always nice affirming words. And then what happens after 20 years later? Would you please stop doing that? I can't stand that anymore. And so you get lots of free-flowing criticism and what? We've almost lost sight of the Words of encouragement, affirmation, if we're not careful. It takes effort. It takes something you really have to think about. And so I ask the question, when's the last time you wrote a note of encouragement to another believer? Out of the respect for them, faithfully serving Christ down in the trenches, using their gifts in ways in which you see the value of what they're doing. Now, since they're not here, I'm going to brag them a little bit. But some couple that did this very effectively for many years, Ron and Melissa Plasinski. I cannot tell you the number of times that the, that dear couple offered to me affirming words, various words of appreciation expressed in creative ways. You don't always have to be the most creative person. They were very creative. I came here one Sunday morning. I spoke, some of you folks were here. And on the front lawn out here, I was getting ready to come in the side door. No, no, you need to come around the front of the door. I'm like, what's going on? In the front of the church are these just endless numbers of signs put down into the, into the lawn 
of emails that you folks had written, of things that you appreciate about me, they're on display for me to read. You talk about encouragement. And then they give me a framed picture of that to help me remember all of that years later. It's an amazing abilities to do something like that. But let me, it doesn't take that, my friend. It just takes sometimes just words spoken in a way that shows you really mean it. It takes little notes that you put in the church mailboxes here. It takes any kind of things like that. It's amazing how words of encouragement can help people still want to keep on discipling. Not burn out. Not give up. Now our church and every church needs the people like Paul. Visionaries, people of action, people who are boundary breakers. We all need people like that. Church always needs people like Aquila and Priscilla. People who are generous, serving people, opening up their home and sharing what they have with other people. Beautiful. But let me tell you, the church also needs people like Barnabas. People who offer words of encouragement. And oh, the blessing when God blows breezes of encouragement where we are laboring for Him in a ministry situation that sometimes feels like there's lots of currents coming at us. We're going upstream. Oh, to have the breezes of encouragement helping us to further make progress in following Jesus and helping other people become more like Him as well as we seek to make disciples. May the Lord help us to take these things to heart, not because we have to do all these things, not because it's just a long list of rules, but may the Lord burn them in our hearts as that which thankful disciples do. They joyfully serve others. They joyfully become a caring people who are consecrated, who, who are able to take correction, and who are also offering encouragement and confirmation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would take these practical aspects of discipling. We pray that you would, Lord, uh, continue them. We know that these are happening on some level in various ways among us, and we thank you for that, Lord. We pray that for those who have never stepped out and who have never really become bold and who've always thought about inviting that neighbor or those folks after church to, into their home or take them out to somewhere to get a cup of coffee and have conversations and to ask questions and to listen. Lord, I pray that even today there might be a, a willingness to, to write down specific names of people that we want to do something for. We want to stop talking about it. We want to do it. And so I pray today, Lord, that you would place it on the hearts of those who you are by your Spirit, compelling them to respond this way. We pray that you'd help us to put feet to these intentions. Help us, Lord, to take ministry into the realm of our everyday life, to be on mission for Jesus, to be people who are disciples of Jesus, who are making disciples of other people so that they might follow, become more like Christ, and therefore glorify you. Toward that end, Lord, help our church to accomplish its mission. For your glory we pray. Amen.